Our Father, we cry out to you for your help now. We want to have your word in such a way that we understand it and apply it in the best possible, wisest way. Make yourself known. Lord Jesus, we bow before your presence now, recognising that you are the one who is speaking to us. You're dealing with us. Your love is deep and strong and true and kind. And we expect great things. We come knowing that you hear us and we plead for your name's sake and in and through your name that you would bless us abundantly. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I see some boys and girls out there, and there's some this way too. I want to start with a fairly long story. It's June 1965. Six boys are all pupils of a boarding school in Tonga. The oldest boy is 16. The youngest is 13. And they have one main thing in common. They are bored. So they come up with a plan to escape. They want to go to Fiji, which is over a 1,000 kilometres away or even all the way to New Zealand. There's only one obstacle against them. No one owns a boat, so they decide to steal one from a fisherman. The boys take very little time to prepare for their voyage. They get two sacks of bananas, a few coconuts, small gas burner, or all the supplies that they pack. It doesn't occur to any of these boys to bring a map, let alone a compass. Not one of them is an experienced sailor. Only the youngest, David, even knows how to steer a boat. The journey begins well. No one notices the small fisherman's craft leaving the harbour that evening. Skies are fair, only a mild breeze ruffles the calm sea. But that night, the boys make a grave error. They all fall asleep. A few hours later, they wake to water crashing down over their heads. It's dark. All they can see is the foaming waves around them. They hoist the sail, which the wind promptly tears to pieces. The next thing to break is the rudder. And we drift for eight days, Mano, one of the boys says, without food and without water. The boys tried catching fish. These boys managed to collect some rainwater in hollowed out coconut shells, and they share it equally between them, each taking a sip in the morning and a sip at night. Then on the eighth day, they spy a miracle on the horizon. It's land. It is a small, uninhabitable island. The boys set up a small commune with a food garden, hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater, a gymnasium with curious weights, a badminton court, and there's people lived there a long time before, so they have chickens and they need a chicken pen and they want a permanent fire. It's all done with an old knife blade. It's Stephen, who later becomes an engineer, who, after countless failed attempts, manages to produce a spark using two sticks. This flame never goes out for more than a year. The kids agree to work in teams of two, and they have a strict roster for their garden, for their kitchen, and for their guard duty. Sometimes they quarrel. 
But whenever that happens, they solve this by having a compulsory timeout. The squabblers have to go to the opposite ends of the island to cool their tempers, and after four hours or so, they're forced to say sorry to one another. Their days begin and end with song and, believe it or not, prayer. Colo fashions a makeshift guitar with a piece of driftwood, half a coconut shell and six steel wires that they salvage from their wrecked boat. And their spirits really do need lifting. All summer long, it hardly rains, driving the boys frantic with thirst. They try constructing a raft in order to leave the island, but it falls apart in the crashing surf. Then there's a storm that sweeps across the island and drops a tree on their house. Worst of all, Stephen slips and breaks his leg when he goes down a cliff. The other boys have to pick their way down after him and help him back up to the top. And they set his leg using sticks and leaves. The boys, you'll be pleased to know, are finally rescued on Sunday the 11th of September, 1966. Physically, they're in peak condition. The local doctor later expresses astonishment at their muscled physiques and Stephen's perfectly healed leg. But this isn't the end of the boys' adventure because when they arrive back, they find the police are waiting for them. You might expect the officers to have been thrilled at the return of the six lost boys, but no, the police board the boat of their rescuer, an Aussie called Peter Warner. The police arrest the boys and put them in jail. The owner of the boat that the boys had stolen 15 months earlier is still furious, and he decides to press charges. Fortunately for the boys, Peter is a resourceful Aussie. He comes up with a plan. It occurs to Peter that the story of the shipwreck is perfect Hollywood material. Six kids marooned on an island. It's a tale people will talk about for years. And Peter is his dad's corporate accountant. He knows how to look after money, and he also manages the company's movie rights and knows people in television. Peter Warner becomes a hero, of course, in rescuing. Let's go to my first main point in the Bible now. It's about trust, trust. Just like these teenage boys, Jesus' disciples are in very serious trouble. Look at verse 33. Jesus says, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. John 13, 33, you will look for me and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus knows exactly how best to comfort his disciples and what is his answer? Let's go to chapter 14, verse 1. John 14, 1. The thing that matters in an impending disaster is that shipwrecked boys have someone they can really trust, and it's the same for the disciples. Jesus calls them to exercise trust or faith. If they really trust God and the Messiah, Jesus Christ, they won't be in such deep distress. Now, Calvin tells us that most people believe in a God, some kind of great God. But he says, only one in a hundred really actually believes. 
They say they believe, and they think they might believe, but they don't actually believe when it comes to the crunch. Why is this? Well, the Tongan boys, they pray for rescue, and they keep up a smoke signal daily. It goes all night and all day. They maintain it all the time. Why is it that so few people really believe that God is worth trusting? This is because Satan makes sure that the clouds of every description hinder us from tying up all our hopes with God. But there is more. Look at verse 1 again. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, holds out himself as the object to which our trust ought to be directed. Here is the way for true comfort when we're in trouble. And why is this? Well, Jesus is the true Emmanuel. He is God with us. He meets every need of yours and every need of mine as we seek him by trust or faith. It's one of the most important truths of our Bible that our faith ought to be, our trust ought to be directed to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we drift, just like those boys, through endless oceans, endless oceans of nonsense and difficulty. We don't understand ourselves, we don't understand life, we have no idea of what eternity really is. We think we might know, but we just drift along. This is the true proof of trust, of faith, when we never allow ourselves to be torn away from Jesus Christ and from the promises that he has made to us in himself. It is just so easy to look to just one object of our faith or trust, God alone, and pay no attention to Jesus Christ. If you get your ideas from any other source than your Bible, you're very likely to drift with proud kind of people, just like those kids, with proud kind of people who are ashamed of Jesus' manger and Jesus' cross. You will drift to the lost ideas of God's incomprehensible greatness or something like that. And your trust will never reach for true comfort unless you submit to Jesus Christ himself who appears to be a low and contemptible God on so many counts. Trust will never be firm if it does not seek a foundation in the weakness of Jesus Christ. I ask this morning and I ask myself too, do you trust I think it's impossible to overrate this immense importance of the question that I put to you. All things hinge upon this question. Those who trust Jesus Christ are no longer condemned. Those people who do not trust him are worse off than those boys. They're lost. If you trust, if you believe, you are pardoned, put in the right with God. You're accepted in God's sight. And you have a title to everlasting life. If you do not trust, you're perishing daily. Your sins are upon your own head. You're sinking down to endless ruin. Every hour you're much closer to eternal loss. Do you trust? 
It matters nothing what others are doing. The question concerns you and you and you and you. The folly of other people is no excuse for your folly, your stupidity. Do you trust? It's no answer to say that you sometimes hope that Jesus Christ died for you. That's not good enough. The scriptures never tell us to spend our time in doubts and hesitation on this all-important point. We never read of a single case of one person who stood still on that ground. Salvation is never made to turn on the question whether Jesus died for humans or not. The turning point is always set before us as trusting Jesus Christ. Do you trust? Do you believe? This is the point to which all of us must come at last if we would be rescued. My second main point is about the Father's house. It's there in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Here we see the great compassion of a great God. The Lord Jesus promises special lodging places for his people. Unlike the house the Tongan boys built, these lodging places are already prepared, fully prepared. This great God is worthy of your trust as he knows exactly what you will need for all time and for all eternity. And there is room for all. The expression, if it were not so, I would have told you, that emphasises this point. If it were not so, I would have told you. If there were any real cause for doubt or concern about God's provision for his people, Jesus' teaching would all be up the creek. It would all be messed up. These words bring comfort and assurance to anyone that is troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Jesus is reassuring his followers that they have every reason to trust. We have a full Bible. We have every reason to trust. Jesus' followers know him. And if there were not these dwelling places in heaven, his whole teaching would have to have been different. Then Jesus adds, I am going to prepare a place for you. This is an amazing way of referring to the cross. Remember these words are just before Jesus dies. I am going to prepare a way for you. Jesus' death for sinners would prove to be the means of making it possible for them to enter heaven. Jesus will prepare a place in heaven for each one of his followers. Then in verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may be where I am. Now Jesus tells us of the certainty of his return, his coming back. His disciples are not for one moment to think that he will forget them. They're not to think that his leaving is, well, everything's gone. It's all for their best welfare. As certainly as he has gone, he will come back. Here Jesus uses the present continuous tense, I am coming again. This is a vivid and realistic present that may be used to speak about the future. 
The second coming of Jesus is so certain that he can speak of it as present when he's talking. No one has any need for any doubt in this matter. Jesus' second coming is absolutely certain. Jesus links that second coming to the receiving of his people to himself. His tender concern for his own people looks down past the cross, down past the resurrection with all its triumph, down past the ascension with all the sense of completion of his earthly life. This tender concern looks past all the waiting down many centuries to us in 2021. I will take you back to be with me. The words I and you are in emphasis. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. This means there is an unclouded fellowship between saved people and the saviour, between rescued people and their rescuer. There is no need for a timeout place here. Jesus is not talking about an aimless sequence of events that somehow in the end will work out okay. Jesus is speaking of firm purpose. It is God's perfect plan that Jesus will return in due course so that Jesus and his followers will be together in his heaven. Jesus gives no description of heaven except to say his followers will be where he is. Whatever else heaven may hold, the most important part is that Jesus himself will be there and he will be with them forever. I say Christians here this morning, disciples of Jesus, look up and take comfort. Jesus has prepared a place for you and those who follow him will never perish. No one can take you out of Jesus' hand. Look forward to the glorious dwelling place he has provided. Look forward in trust because it is your very own. Christian friends, think what a glorious meeting it will be. I know some of you fairly well. Some of you I know extremely well. It would be wonderful to be there together. What will we be doing? I don't know all the details, but one thing I know, with one heart and voice we will sing that glorious song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, blessing and honour, and glory and power be unto the Lamb forever and ever. And that takes me to my last main point this morning. My last main point is about the rescuer. Peter Warner, he sees the smoke signal and he brings the Tongan boys home only to find that they face imprisonment. Nothing daunted, that rescuer soon finds a way to get them all out of jail free. It's the same with the Lord Jesus. He's ready for any and every difficulty. Whoever gets Christ will want for nothing. Look at verse 6. Jesus answers, 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus lays down three degrees. As Calvin helps us again here, he says, it is as if Jesus says that he's the beginning and the middle and the end. And hence it follows that we ought to begin with him, continue in him, and trust him to the very end. Jesus uses that divine name given to Moses at the burning bush. I am. This is a full identity with the great God of all eternity. What does this formula mean, I am? Well, it means lots of things. It means self-existence. I am. I depend on nothing. It means covenant keeper. When agreements are made that concern Jesus, they'll never be broken. And it also means something very interesting, the God of the now. Right now. Right now, Jesus himself is the way. The way to heaven. The way to peace with God, to be reconciled to him. He's the only guide and teacher and lawgiver like Moses, but he himself is the door, the ladder, and the road through whom we must draw near to God. Jesus has opened the way to the tree of life. Through Jesus' blood, we may draw near with boldness and have access with every confidence and come into God's presence. Right now, Jesus Christ is the truth the whole substance of true religion which the mind of humans require. Any human has everything of the truth with Jesus. Without him, the wisest people, they grope in gross darkness and know nothing about God. If you don't believe me, read the early history of Fiji. I cannot believe that the place was so primitive and the wickedness was so rife and the cruelty was so terrible. When Jesus comes, even chiefs bow to him. It's just so wonderful. In the Old Testament, what happened? Well, they could see all this kind of thing in a smudgy sort of way. They did know. They believed in a saviour to come. They had ceremonies and pictures, picture language of things. Christ is the whole truth. When we see him in our New Testament, we find that he meets and satisfies every desire of the human mind. And right now, right this very second, Jesus Christ is the life, the sinner's title to eternal life and pardon, the believer's root of all spiritual life and holiness, and a pledge of every Christian's everlasting life. The person who remains in him, as you see in the next chapter, the person who remains in him as the, as the branch remains in the vine, they bring forth much fruit. The person who trusts on him, though that person is dead back in chapter 11, they will live. The root of all life for your soul and for your body is all in Jesus Christ. Forever let us grasp and hold fast onto these truths. Find comfort 
in Jesus Christ every day in 2021 as your way. And believe in Jesus Christ every day as the truth. And live on Jesus Christ daily as the life. That's the way to be a well-informed, thoroughly furnished and established Christian. We've got to look at the negative too in what Jesus says, haven't we? No one comes to the Father except through me. See, it's negatives that help show us the positive, isn't it? <laughs> it's always that way. It's not just in art, but it's, it's there with the truth too. No one, he insists, no one comes to the Father except through me. It counts for nothing that a person is clever or highly educated or wonderfully gifted or friendly, charitable, kind-hearted and zealous about some sort of religion. All this will not save your soul if you don't draw near to God by Christ's atonement and make use of God's own Son as your mediator and saviour. God is so holy and all people are so guilty, the debtors in God's sight. Sin is so very sinful that no mortal person can make satisfaction for sin. There must be a mediator, a rescuer, a ransom payer, a redeemer between ourselves and God, or else we will never be rescued. There's only one door, one bridge, one ladder between earth and heaven, and it's the crucified Son of God. Whoever will enter in by that door will be saved, but to anyone who refuses to use that door that the Bible holds out for us, there's no hope at all. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Let us beware, if we love life, of supposing that a mere Earnestness will take us to God's heaven, though we know nothing of Jesus Christ. The idea is a deadly and serious error. Sincerity will never wipe away sin. It is not true that all persons will be saved by their own religion, no matter what they believe, so long as they are diligent and sincere. We can't afford to pretend to be wiser than God. Jesus Christ has said it, and he sticks by what he says. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then Jesus backs all this up. He's so magnificent in what he says now. It's really the climax here. How very clear and how close and mysterious is the union of God the Father and God the Son. Quite a number of times over, we have this mighty truth put before us in words that cannot be mistaken. Verse 7, if you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. And then we go down to verse 9. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Why are you asking, how can you say, show us the Father? And then verse 10. I am in the Father, and that the Father is in me. Further down in verse 10, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. And then verse 11, believe me that I say, I am in the Father, 
and the Father is in me. Here we go into things of great mystery. We have no eyes to see their meaning fully. We don't have a line to fathom this. We don't really have language to express it. We don't have minds to take it in. We must be content to trust when we can't explain and to admire and make the most of it and revere what we cannot fully interpret. It should be enough for us to know and to hold that the Father is God and the Son is God. And yet they're one in essence, though, two distinct persons, perfectly one, yet perfectly distinct. These are awesome, truly awesome things. We cannot have full comprehension of them. But let us take comfort in the plain truth that Jesus Christ is very God, of very God, equal with the Father in all things and one with him. He who loves us and shed his blood on the cross and bids us trust him for pardon is no mere human like you and me. He is God over all, blessed forever, and able to rescue anyone, even the worst antisocial kind of sinners. Though our sins are as scarlet, he can make them white as snow. If you cast your soul on Jesus Christ, you have an almighty friend, a friend who is one with the Father and who is very God. Well, as I conclude, I ask again, do you trust? It matters not, and it matters nothing, what other people are doing. The question concerns you yourself. The folly of other people is no excuse for your folly. Do you trust? It's no answer. It's no answer to say that you sometimes hope that Jesus Christ died for you. The Bible never tells us to spend our time in doubts and hesitations on that particular point. There are other points we can debate, but not on that one. We never read of a single case of one who stood still on that ground. Salvation is never made to turn on the question whether Jesus Christ died for humans or not. The turning point is always set before us as trusting Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we bow before you, realising that you are God over all. You're the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And to you, all glory and praise belong. We thrill to think that you are the perfect rescuer. That you care about six Tongan boys stuck on an island who've been so foolish. And that you care about everyone bowed before you and those who are not wanting to bow. Lord Jesus, we ask that we will see and understand the reasons to trust and recognise that the door is worth going through and that the way is worth taking and that the truth of yourself is absolute and that life, life to the full is for the here and now for every one of us as we trust you and for all eternity. 
meet with us as a group of your people, Lord Christ. May we never, never once ever again be ashamed of yourself and the wonder of your rescue. And we plead for the honour of your name in your name. Amen.